blessing to be here today. It's a blessing to see you all here joining us for our service this morning. Our scripture reading comes from Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 40. If you would turn there with me in your Bibles, Isaiah 40. If you don't have your own Bible, our ushers have Bibles available, and raise your hand and they'll bring one that you can use throughout our service this morning. Let's all stand then in respect to the reading of God's holy word. Isaiah 40. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a, a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry, and I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord comes with might and his arm rules him. Behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off, the, marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord, or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult, and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge? and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust of the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing in emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compares with him? An idol, a craftsman crafts it. He casts it and, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. 
Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a, like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me, that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Let's bow for a time of prayer. After our prayer, a choir will come with special music and then the preaching of God's word through Brian this morning. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to worship on the Sunday morning. We thank you, Lord, that our doors are open, our lights are on, and we have heat in this place. And you have brought people here from all portions of this city and even this state to come and to worship. We pray now, Lord, as we quiet our hearts, that you would move amongst us, that you would speak through your word today, that you would use your messenger to speak your truth, that our hearts might be open to be ready to receive it, and with joy we would obey your word. We would take it in, we would live it out, we would observe who you are and recognize who you are and honor you and obey you, that we would trust in you and cling to you and place all of our hope in you. So bless us now as we come to hear your word today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Please be seated. Praise the Lord. Thankful to the Lord to be able to speak with you guys. You know, last time that I preached, I didn't know a week later I'd be not here. That I'd be in the hospital. 
And I appreciate you guys' prayers because it's the prayers that kept me alive, I believe. And I just thank the faithfulness of the saints. And I thank the faithfulness of God who was with me, you know, because they got these silly rules. Nobody else could be with you. But the Lord was with me. And um, I know many people were praying and many people were helping my family while I was gone. I really appreciate that. And after I got back, you know, they, they suspended me from Sunday school. Couldn't teach. No, they, they was trying to give me a rest, but I was feeling restless because I love to teach and preach the word of God. I have a strong desire that God has given me to preach his word. And I'm thankful because he's given me a word today. Out of the book of Isaiah, in chapter 40, as we read today. And as you uh, see, this is a chapter that's got a lot of famous verses in it, doesn't it? But I want to just give us the big view because the big view is the good view when it comes to God's word. Isaiah is a book that the skeptics hate because it has prophecies of the future that came true. And so people try to say all kinds of things about Isaiah. They try to say it was written after the fact of the prophecies. Then they try to say it has multiple authors. And if you read all these things, you'll hear all these different ways of why they can't believe Isaiah. But the real reason they don't want to believe Isaiah is because it proves the word of God is true. And for our sake, it should be enough for us to understand that Jesus quoted Isaiah. And he believed in Isaiah. And it should be enough for our sake to look at the apostles who quoted Isaiah. And they quoted Isaiah extensively on two topics. One is the coming of Jesus and the nature of the Messiah. But the second one was unbelief because Isaiah ministered for at least 64 years, but he didn't see many conversions. And in the New Testament, they keep on quoting them. They talk about unbelief almost every time. And in chapter 40, we get to this picture that hasn't happened yet. In chapter 40, it's built off of the previous chapter where Isaiah was talking to Hezekiah, and he said, why you show the Babylonians everything in your possession? Don't you realize that God is going to send them to judge the people? And so chapter 40 imagines that the prophecy has already occurred that the people are already in captivity, that they are already strangers in a foreign land. And that's what makes chapter 40 so powerful to us. Because we have in common with people in captivity that we are people in a strange land. We are not in our home country. Don't think about being an American. Think about being in a citizen of heaven. We walk through a strange land, laws that are not our own, people who are not friendly to us. They don't seek our well-being. You don't turn on the TV and hear the media praising the local church but preaching strongly about homosexuality. No, you see opposition to the church 
as you should, because this is enemy territory. But in chapter 39, while we might be led to believe that we should be in the dumps, and it's understood that you would be sad if you're in captivity, in chapter 40, it's all about giving a message of comfort. Verse 1 says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Now, how does he comfort his people? Well, I want you to understand this, that the first 11 verses are a section. And when you properly understand that, you understand this message, that God sends a message of comfort to his people through his prophets. He gives comfort how? He gives comfort by speaking. He says, comfort, comfort my people, says your God. By hugging them? No, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem. And cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Comfort my people is a call to the preacher. Hey, 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 you. I need you to comfort my people. They will go through difficult times. What is the message? The warfare is ended. What does that mean? That means they are discharged from duty. They are discharged from the duty of what? Suffering. At one day, one point in time, in the future, right, we will be discharged from this battle of suffering. He says iniquity has been pardoned. The prophets are armed with a message of forgiveness. There's nothing more comforting to a believer than understanding that his sins will not come back to bite him. Our past will not come back to haunt us because they are paid for. And he says, double for all your sins. And we can misunderstand that phrase, but what that simply means is this. Trouble will not last forever. God has punished, and he's done punishing. Double for all your sins literally means he filled up the quota of punishment, and he's done. And what that means for the believer is this, that when you do wrong, God disciplines you, but he disciplines with restraint. He disciplines not just with restraint, but with a purpose. And so we can learn from these first two verses this main point, that God sends his prophets to comfort, comfort his people by preaching that suffering has an end point, that their sins are forgiven, and that their discipline has a purpose. That is not something that the world can always see, that bad things happen to them for a reason. But we can see that. So then we get into the next part of this comfort. The cry of the prophets. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. And you might remember that this is something that is quoted, right? My dad has been preaching through March, and you heard this quoted, and who is it quoted about? It's John the Baptist. And what's the full context of it? It says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the, in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley will be lifted up, every mountain and hill will be made low. 
The uneven ground shall become level and rough places a plain, and the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. John the Baptist fulfilled this. Let's talk about it from the big view first. John the Baptist fulfilled this because he had a message of repentance and humility. He was preparing the way. How did he prepare the way? He said, you need to be baptized. But what did it mean to be baptized in that day? It meant to admit that you were a Jew, but you weren't worthy to be a Jew. That's, that takes some humble pie. Because Jews were proud of their heritage. And they all felt that they deserved to be the people of God. But John the Baptist's message is, you ain't worthy to be the people of God. You need to be cleaned. You are dirty. And that's what baptism meant. You need to come down to me, to the Jordan, and be baptized. You need to admit that you are not the people of God. You need to be clean before you are worthy to return to the Lord. And when the Pharisees came, he said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And why did he say that? Because his message was not about a show, right? It wasn't a show to show, oh, I'm holy, I'm righteous, oh, I'm in this movement. No, it's about a real heart that has turned to the Lord. But John is just a symbol of all the prophets because all the prophets are preparing the way for the Lord. John the Baptist is the primary example because he came and bore a message right before who came? Jesus Christ came. But every prophet and every preacher should be preaching a message that encourages and enables Jesus Christ to enter in without obstacle. And Isaiah and the people who would have understood this, they, at that day, they wouldn't have thought about John the Baptist because John the Baptist wasn't born. But what they would have thought was, we are in Babylon. And to get back to Jerusalem, we have to go through some struggles. We have to go through mountains. We have to go through valleys. We have to go through lands where there are no roads. And I know that's hard for us as people to understand because we have so many roads in America. We're spoiled because we pretty much have civilized the wilderness here. But if you have ever gone on a hike or if you have ever tried to go to the lake where the, where the road is done, and you try to just go and you try to walk a straight line, you start to realize the world isn't working straight lines. It's hard to get from A to B. Think of all the money we spend to make roads, and the reason we do that is because it is not easy to traverse this planet. It takes millions and billions of dollars. It takes lives. It takes heavy equipment to make a road. Why? Because the world is a wilderness that is not necessarily friendly to man. But in this prophecy, you get the idea that the people are not only leaving captivity from Babylon, but God is literally making the, the world obey their path. They walk in, and they say, man, there's a cliff, and all of a sudden a rock floats over and becomes a bridge. And a mountain is in their way, and it splits, and in the middle is a road. That's the idea you get. And what's the idea you also get is that God is coming, and the people are coming, and the road is split before the two of them.
what you get is the idea that all obstructions are removed in the presence of God. What you get is there's victory in the enemy's sight. It says the glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together, but all flesh will not obey God. Rather, the idea is that God will reward us even while our enemies look on. And it gives us the ability to gloat the last time. Right? That's the idea you get. The idea you get is, oh, you was mocking me my whole life. You said I was living for the Lord for no reason. But now look as I enter heaven and receive this crown of life. And you see it happen to me. It's the ultimate diss and it's the ultimate praise. Yes, I won and I'm recognized in front of you. And it's fulfilled in all prophets who look to the Lord's glorious appearing. And so what we can learn from this section is this. The prophets preach a message of hope. The message is that God will come. Right? God will come. We will not always live in this world the way that it is now. There will be a day when the Lord will come. And because he will come, we must prepare for his coming. Because like a bride on her wedding day or a judge in his courtroom, we prepare the way for those we honor. And if we really honor the Lord, we should be making things clean for him. How do we do that? By repenting. How do we do that? Removing all obstacles to obeying him. So then we get into the next section, third section of this early part. The call of the prophets. A voice says, cry. Now who's the voice? Earlier, we saw the voice crying, and it was the cry of the prophets. But in this section, the cry is not the prophet. It is the Holy Spirit. Because he's giving a command. He's not just saying a word. He said, hey, cry. And Isaiah says, what shall I cry? And in that, we start to understand the call of the prophet. That the prophet's job is not to make up what he's supposed to say. But the prophet hears from the Lord and speaks, thus says the Lord. And it is the prophet's job to simply faithfully repeat what he has heard from God. But what should he faithfully repeat that he heard from God? Well, all flesh is grass. All flesh is grass. And in this word picture, he reduces man to nothing. Because Many people don't know this, and I had to look this up myself. A blade of grass only lives 40 days. Which means that for us, when we look at a blade of grass, it doesn't really matter to us. We look at a lawn, right? We say, man, your lawn look good, but we don't look at individual blades of grass. And what a lawn does when it remains healthy is it keeps on dropping seeds so that more blades of grass keep sprouting up to replace the ones that die every 40 days. And he says, the glory of man is like the flower of the field. 
And he's reducing the glory that we might pride. Oh, I'm beautiful. Oh, I'm smart. Oh, I'm powerful. Oh, I'm a political person. Oh, I'm involved in this movement. Whatever you take pride in is like a flower of the field. Yeah, it's nice. But it ain't nothing you're going to stop your day over. In fact, if somebody steps on it, it's gone. The grass fades away and nobody notices it when it's gone. You might say to me, well, you know, that's not true, Brian. There's very famous people. But let me ask you this. If a president dies, it ain't the end of the country. Because most likely when he's died, there's already been presidents after him. When people die, the world keeps going. You know, we, we buried many believers in the last year. And I think about when my grandfather died. We was all sad. And a couple of days later, we went back to work. We all had to keep going because the earth did not stop spinning because grandpa died. And if I die, it's going to be the same. You might be sad. My family will be sad. But at the end of the day, they're going to have to live because I'm just a blade of grass. I am not meant to last forever. You are not meant to last forever. The things that we take pride in last even shorter. Because the flower of the field comes from the grass, and guess what? A flower lasts even shorter than the grass does. And so the idea that we should be clinging on to this planet, that's from Satan. This idea that everything on this earth is what matters. <sighs> you better watch out. Somebody feeding you a bill of lies. The grass withers. The flower fades. But the word of our God will stand forever. See, the prophet speaks only as the Holy Spirit commands. And he speaks the living word of God. And that word stands See, the prophet speaks only what the Holy Spirit wants him to, and that word is living. In other words, it has vitality. In other words, it's like a tree compared to a grass. Grass dies, and we don't know it's going or coming. But the tree is there for a long term. The tree shapes the land, and so it is with the word of God. The word of God is full of vitality, but not only that, it stands. When the prophet says something and he says what the command of the Holy Spirit is, the Lord stands with that word, and it cannot fall to the ground. That's why we say the word will not return to him void. Why? Because the word is powerful, and it's infused with power by God himself. So when we say, thus saith the Lord, and we really are holding true to this word, you better pay attention. Because it's not playing with you. Right? It's not playing around. The word is not a joke. I remember I had to talk to somebody, and I had to tell them, you think this is a joke? You think life is a game. You sitting there and, oh, I'm going to come to church this way, I'm going to come to church that way, I might not come next week. You think it's all a joke and a game. You are trying to impress my eyes. But at the end of the day, I'm just a blade of grass. It is the eyes of God that you need to impress. And if you don't impress him, you will not be long for this earth. You will not be long for eternity. You will go to a place of destruction. And that's the word of God that abides and lives forever. 
And if God said, those who do not trust my son will go to hell, that word doesn't become void. And that's the scary part. Because just like God promised us salvation, and that word abides, and we can trust in that word, and in a million years we'll still be in heaven, so it is when God said, you are cursed if you do not trust my son, and so in a million years you will still be in hell, and you still got millions of years to go. Because the word abides, and he keeps his promise, whether that be good or bad. And the prophet is powerful, not because the prophet has power, but because the word that he speaks is infused with power, not by him, but by God. And so we get, in this last part of this first section, the instruction of the prophet. He says, go up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. He pictures the prophet as those who are publicly proclaiming God's word loud and clear and without fear. This is why me and dad, when we preach up here, we don't have a mask on. Because we have no fear when we preach God's word. I refuse to show fear, and I refuse to negotiate with somebody else about how I'm going to preach God's word. I refuse to moderate God's word. I refuse to try to make it sound nicer to you or to appeal to your sensibilities when I'm preaching God's word. If you don't like it, well, if it was me, I'd just say you can leave, but ultimately, it's God you got to contend with. Not me. And so the prophet is supposed to publicly proclaim these things, and what he is supposed to proclaim is this. Behold your God. That's why I want to sing this song after this sermon is over. I want the praise team and everybody to get ready because we're going to sing this song, but the idea is behold your God. Why? Well, there's two things about beholding your God. One is behold your God teaches us about his nature, Right? The prophet is supposed to tell us what kind of God we're beholding. But the other picture is that the prophet is standing up on a mountain because he's like a watchman over a city. and He's seeing God coming towards the city. He says, hey, there's God. He's coming. And with God's coming is a promise of salvation and judgment. He says, behold, his reward is with him and his recompense before him. God is coming, and when he comes, that's the end of the ballgame. And he is a God of compassion. It says he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. We have a God who has good intentions towards us. He loves us and he cares for us and he's going to help us be healthy and make it to that final day. And our God is coming. So if we got a broken leg, we can say, God is coming. I'm not worried because I know he's coming. I'm suffering now, but I know he is coming. And I know his nature that when he comes, he won't look at me indifferently. He will look at me 
like one of his. And so the fourth point that we learn is this. The prophet boldly declares what God reveals of himself. And also like a watchman, he points out the signs of his coming. And so in this section, let's talk about this section, big view. Verse 1 through 2, we see the need for the prophet. God saw the need of his people and he sent men to speak words of comfort. Verse 3 through 5, we see the message of the prophet. Those prophets cry that God is coming and that God's people should prepare for him. In verse 6 through 8, we see the call of the prophet. The Holy Spirit commands them to preach the living word. And then verse 9 through 11, we see the role of the prophet. And the prophets, like watchmen, declare the coming of God. This is a message of hope. We can have comfort now because we know that the bad things that are coming to us will not last forever. And ultimately, God is coming and he loves us and he has good intentions for us and he will reward us. But when God comes, we have to understand who is this God? If we now believe that he is coming, part of behold our God is also to say, what kind of God are we looking at? But he reveals his nature through his word. And that's when we get to the second half of this chapter. These parts are not different sections. It is one whole prophecy. And so when you get to verse 12, you start to realize, whoa, God is talking. God is preaching. If he was rapping, we'd be saying, he's giving some bars right here. If he is preaching, we have to say amen. And he says some stuff that is like, you can't help but feel the power of these words. He says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighed the mountains and scales and the hills in a balance? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord And what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult and who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop in a bucket and are counted as dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing. And emptiness. The first thought that we get is that creation fails to explain the greatness of God. All the oceans could be said to exist in the hollows of his hand. Now when we talk about the hollows of his hand, I don't think it's even talking about his hands like this. I think it's just talking about the little lines in your hand. He's talking about the fact that no matter what you look at in creation, it pales in comparison to God. When it talks about his wisdom, what we understand is that his wisdom has no limit. We talk about the forest of Lebanon. If you really read through biblical history, you'll realize that Lebanon was famous for its forest. That it was almost like a land that was just covered with forest. He said all of those trees, that's like a match for him. And the idea is this. God is eternal, God is self-sufficient, and God is omnipresent. He is eternal. And we could almost summarize the ideas at this. 
of this that God is just too big. He is too big for us to completely comprehend. God is eternal, meaning he doesn't have limits to himself. What limits man does not limit God. That includes his understanding, that includes his size, that includes his power. He has no limits. He is completely self-sufficient. In other words, God needs nothing and no one but himself. He is the only being in existence that sustains himself. Every other being has to get fuel or power or food from something outside of itself to live, but not God. God sustains himself with himself. God is not lonely. I've heard people say, well, God created man so he would have someone to be with. No. Because before time existed, God was already in communion with himself. And if you want to be real complex with it, you can think about it this way, that God already loved himself because he loved his son, and the son loved the father, and the Holy Spirit loved God the father and loved the son. And they already had this unity and this love that we can't even comprehend. But we get close to that love in his church. Because Paul said we ought to become one like he is one. Look at Ephesians 4. But that's a sermon for another day. But the whole point is this, that God don't need nobody. He don't need nothing. The other section says this, that he cannot be compared with and he has no rivals. The first part of it talks about an idol. And it's kind of mocked, but this idea that you have to set an idol down in such a way that it doesn't fall over. Right? That's what he said. He set up an idol that will not move. And the idea is this, you want to compare God to that? You want to compare God to something that you have to set just right, or if it falls over, it's done? Come on now. You want to compare God to the earth? People saying, oh, that's Mother Earth. Stop talking to me about Mother Earth. Stop talking to me about Mother Nature. There is neither mother exists. But I can tell you there is God who does what he does. And Mother Nature is just random. And Mother Earth, what is that? Because it seems to me like we can abuse Mother Earth all we want to. But God will not be abused. If you spit in God's face, he will be patient. But he will repay every man for his works. Mother Earth ain't going to do nothing to you when you abuse it. If you throw a piece of paper on the ground, it's not like, you know, a bird going to come and peck you. People create these ideas because they like to think of a God that has no power. But don't fool yourself into thinking that it's something in common with the real God. You can't compare God to man. You got a lot of rappers saying to God that they the God of this, they the God of that. And it's 
something that I've pondered because you've seen this arise more and more in rap music. And I'm one who kind of vaguely follows rap. I'm not one who listens to a whole lot of the new guys. But I do notice trends in society, and as a person who is preaching God's word and is a man of God, I feel that it is my duty to see the trends going on in our culture. But I've noticed this, that people think that they are gods. I've noticed that some people worship men as gods. You might say, Brian, when does that happen? And the thought, thought is, if you've seen old videos of how people looked at Elvis, or you've seen old videos of how people look at Michael Jackson or Prince or any star, and they're doing some crazy stuff that you got to say, you basically saying, this guy could abuse me and I will be okay with that. Uh, he's not a god. He overdosed. He couldn't save himself. And I'm not saying that to mock the man, but in reality, he's just a man like me and you. He takes too many drugs and he's dead. What did all his fortune and fame do for him? It wasn't making him happy or he wouldn't have had to overdose. By him overdosing, what that told us is this. The drugs that would make a normal person high wasn't enough to keep him happy anymore. He didn't even have the ability to be content. And a poor man could be content. He was not a god. He was just a man. And not just a man. He was a pathetic shell of a man. Blessed with so much talent that he alienated himself from his fellow human beings to the point where, yes, he might have been messing with children. But yes, he was doing drugs and all kind of stuff. Same with Prince. How did he die? Overdose with drugs. Blessed with so much talent. By who? By God. But cursed to be alienated from men. He couldn't save himself. You can't compare God to the heavens because he could roll them up like a tent. You can't compare him to the princes because he blows on them and they become ashes. You can't compare him to the nations because nations fall and nations rise. You can't compare him to the stars. Because look what he says. Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. There's people out there who worship in stars. And other people who are saying, oh, well, if you see this, the Mars going towards the quarter Venus, that this means that this will happen. You'd be like, you don't know what you're saying. One of my favorite hobbies is when I wake up early in the morning, I listen to crazy radio. And in crazy radio, come on, you turn it on, you're going to see. In crazy radio, it's a lot of people who think that they're astrologers and that they can predict the future by the course of the stars. And what for them is, the stars are their gods. You don't really change their mind by the fact that they don't never predict anything right. And what it produces is madness. That's why I call it crazy radio. If you listen to these people for five minutes, you start to realize these people are nuts. But the crazier thing is that while you can listen to them for five minutes and think they're nuts, somebody else is sitting there listening on the other side of the radio going, wow, I can't believe that. And I'm like, whoa, man, am I the only one crazy or is everybody else crazy? But that's what it means to worship other gods. The idea that you get from verses 18 through 26 is this. People worship all these things that are mentioned. 
in these sections, but none of them compare to the true God. And the main point is this, that God cannot be compared with any other thing that you might wish to worship, and there is none like him. He created the, only, the whole universe, and look at what it says in verse 26. He calls out their host by number, calling them out by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. The thought is this, that God not only created the world, he keeps it going. It's foolish of us to think that the world is just going the way that it is going because it just goes. Who created the law of gravity? Who created the conservation of energy? Who created the chemicals? We don't think about that stuff. Somebody always say, well, you know, there was a big bang. Who made the laws of the universe and where did they come from? And they have nothing to say to these things. Because these laws themselves had to be composed by somebody. And the beautiful artistry that we see in this universe, it all has mathematical rules to it. And for something to have rules, somebody had to make those rules. You know, if you see an abandoned car on the side of the road, nobody says that evolved from the side of a hill. They say to themselves, somebody made this. And even though it's rusted and busted, it was created by somebody. But somebody will look at a flower and think that that evolved from something else. How foolish that is. And then somebody else will say, well, the universe is being upheld by this and that, and they still can't figure out what holds the universe together. They're looking for black matter. They're looking for this. They're looking for that. And in the end of the day, they're not looking towards God, who can fold the heavens like a tent. Who's holding this universe together? It's only him. So then we get into this last session that may seem to come out of nowhere, but it's not. He says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, my right is disregarded by my God? Remember that this whole chapter is about comforting his people. And what happened to these people? They got sent into captivity because of their own sins. But what happens to people who go through bad things? They start to think God doesn't pay attention to them. They start to be tempted to believe that God doesn't care. They start to think that God doesn't know what's going on with them anymore. It's the same thing that happened to Israel when they was in Egypt. It's the same thing that happened to the Israelites in captivity. It's the same thing that happens to the church in America when they see all the evil that people are doing. They say to themselves, God, are you paying attention to this? What are you doing about this? It even happened in the book of Revelations. When all the saints were slain, they went up to the throne and said, God, when are you going to avenge us? And God gave them little robes and told them to wait a while until the rest of the believers were slain. Whoa! That's not the reaction that we thought we was going to get from God. But his whole point is this. Verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? Have you not known? Have you not heard? We're going to talk about that a little bit later, but that is not a phrase that's just mentioned to be literary. It's talking about the word of God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. Look at the important phrase of this section. He does not faint. 
faint being the key word of this last section, right? God does not faint. What the next verse says, he gives power to the faint. What's the next verse say? Even youth shall faint. What's the last verse say? But those who wait on the Lord will not faint. Now let's talk about it. God has all the power in the world. It is not through his lack of understanding or his lack of power that we go through bad things. He is loving towards us. He gives power to us, even through these struggling times. The youth faint, meaning it doesn't matter how powerful you are. As a human, you will reach the limits of your power. All men will faint. But those who wait on the Lord, those who wait on the Lord, this is why I don't like word studies, because somebody will do a study on hope and miss this, because the word hope is not in there. This is talking about hope. It says those who wait on the Lord, what does it mean to wait on the Lord? That means to hope. That means to think that God will come in the future. That's what hope is. Those who hope in God will not be put to shame is what the Psalms say. But Isaiah says, will not faint. Trust in God because he does not let down his people because he's too powerful to be defeated. In other words, we could summarize verse 12 through 31 as this. God is everlasting and does not have human limits. There is no power that can deliver like he can. So don't grow weary. Put your hope in God. Now I want to conclude this whole chapter by saying this. We need to start looking to the word of God for encouragement and not anything else. Look at verse 21. It says, do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? In verse 28, have you not known? Have you not heard? The whole point of those phrases is to point to people because he's talking to the Israelites and he's saying to them, come on, man, didn't you read the law of Moses? Come on, didn't you see the Psalms? Don't you know the nature of God? And how will you know the nature of God if you do not look in his word? And I believe that many people who are discouraged and busted down as Christians and losing battle after battle, they never crack open the word of God. And when they crack it open, they're doing it with a daily crumb or some text verse that somebody done texted them as encouragement, and that's all they read. But until you get into the word, and this is going to be a shameless plug for Sunday school, until you start studying the word of God, and we're going to be going through this, ladies, be here on Sunday morning to go through Sunday school because my wife is going to be teaching through about how to understand the word of God. And men, come to Sunday school because I'm going to be preaching about the keys to understanding the word of God. Six weeks of understanding the word of God better. How are you going to lose from that? People don't know, I don't know if I want to wake up that early. Listen. If you waking up an hour early is going to help you understand God better, you better get up. I might lose some sleep. This is worth losing sleep over. 
get your butt to Sunday school. I ain't saying that respectfully because you don't deserve to be said respectfully. Get your butt to Sunday school. Get on up. Get in God's word. Because the reason that many saints is so up and down is because they do not stand on God's word that lives and abides. The second point I want to raise in conclusion is that God cannot be compared. So metaphors and images only serve as points of reference to him. When we say God is our heavenly father, don't be fooled and think he's like your father. Because he fulfills the role of father perfectly, but that's not all he is. Some people will say, well, God is a God of love, so how can he do this? Listen, please don't mistake one aspect of God as all that God is. Because God is always himself all the time. And what I mean by that is if you break down God in all these different categories and you say God is holy and God is love, it's not like he's loving sometimes and he's holy sometimes. He's always holy and he's always loving He's loving when he puts people in hell. He's holy when he brings people into heaven. He's always himself. He's always all of his qualities, so don't get it twisted. Don't be thinking that, oh, I saw one image of God, and that's all he is because he is so deep. His understanding is unsearchable. His mind is something that humans can't completely grasp. His being is something that ultimately, that's why we worship, because we lose the words to describe who he is. I want to point out another thing, that human distinctions are no barriers to false religion. Look at verse 18 through 20. He says, to whom will you liken God and what likeness will you compare him with him? And we could miss over this point, but he says, a goldsmith overloads it with gold and casts silver chains. He who is too empowered for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. It don't matter whether you're rich. It don't matter whether you're poor. It don't matter whether you're black, it don't matter whether you're white, it don't matter if you vote Republican or if you vote Democrat, all people need the Lord and need to repent of their old ways and choose him only. And some cultures might be more right than others, and some people have a problem with people saying that, but that's just true. But all cultures are ultimately sinful, some more than others. But we must understand this. All men must repent and serve the only living God. I want you to be encouraged by this, that nothing can stop God's work. Nothing can stop God's work. Mountains will be lowered. Valleys will be raised. I want you to be encouraged about this last section that talks about who God is. And think to yourself, why do I need to know that? Well, 2 Timothy 1.12 points this out. And I'm going to just read this. I don't often turn to other passages because I think it sometimes gets in the way. But look at 2 Timothy. This is why I suffer as I do, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. If you know whom you have believed, you have hope. That's why it's important to know that he measures the waters in the palms of his hand. That's why it's important to know he can't be measured by mountains. Once we understand his nature, we can hope in him. 
second last point. See the Holy Spirit, the Son, and the Father in this chapter. See the Holy Spirit in verse 6, the voice cries, and he says, what shall I cry? That's the Holy Spirit. And in verse 13, he says, who measured the Spirit of the Lord? It's the Holy Spirit that's eternal. Look at the Son. Prepare the way of who? The Lord. And who the scripture says who is coming to meet his people? Is Jesus Christ. And don't miss the Father because the Father all through this chapter, right? If you don't see the Father, you will sleep today. And that, you know, they got this sermon probably recorded somewhere, so repent and go ahead and listen to it. But I'm going to say this to close. Understand that God will never forsake his people. He will continue to sustain them with his word and by his men. He will continue to reveal himself through his word. So put your hope and trust in him alone. Let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Lord, we thank you, Lord, for comforting us with your word. Many times we go through different struggles. In many ways, we are like the people of Israel who were in captivity because they were surrounded by their enemies and they wasn't used to that. When they were in a promised land, even though they didn't always obey, they were at least surrounded by people who thought that they were the people of God. But once they went in captivity, Lord, they start to understood that they were surrounded by enemies and they started to realize the value of being. And they yearned for a place where they could return to. where they could be surrounded by people who serve you only. And so we feel the same way, Lord. We yearn for that day when our neighbor is serving you. We yearn for that day when we drive and the person next to us is always serving you. We stop at the red light and we see on our left and on our right somebody serving you. We get on the highway, that's people that's serving you. Our police officers serving you. Our cash register people are serving you. Our presidents and our governors and our mayors all serving you. And that to us, Lord, it seems like a dream. But we pray and thank you, Lord, that that will one day occur. That's our hope, that you will return and make things right, that you will save your people, that you will comfort us, that you will bring us close to you and hug us like dear children. So we thank you, Lord, for your word. We pray that you would cause us to hope in your word. And now, Lord, as we cause the praise team to come forward, Lord, we pray, Lord, that we will be encouraged by your praise. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's do one final song.